0: Welcome to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in financial markets and explore the forces changing investing. I'm your host, Oscar Polito. The COVID-19 pandemic has reshaped the healthcare sector, accelerating trends like digital health, at-home care, and new methods of vaccine development. How have the virus and the upcoming U.S. election changed the way we think about investing in healthcare? Today, we'll speak to three healthcare experts, Aaron Shea. Lead Portfolio Manager for Health Sciences within Active Equities, Sarah Thomas, Research Analyst for the European Equity Team, and Andrew Ferris of BlackRock's Private Equity Partners Group. To start, Sarah Thomas shares the trends that have emerged since COVID 19 came into focus and how that's reshaped the healthcare sector, both on a global level and with a European focus. So curious to hear your views on the trends that have emerged in the healthcare sector since the pandemic began. I know the healthcare sector is quite broad and diverse, but are there actually any areas that we've seen fall out of focus?
1: So you're absolutely right. It's a fairly huge topic at the moment. In the short term, we've seen loads of trends that I hope don't stick. We've seen patients stocking of drugs. We've seen pressure on elective procedures, a shrinking oncology market, for example. But luckily, moving through the third quarter, we've seen those trends start to reverse, which is really encouraging. I'm hoping to see maybe greater adherence to medication for patients, particularly given the link of comorbidities to covid We're definitely seeing increased use of technology and digital in terms of diagnosing patients, drug marketing, and maybe even how they're running clinical trials. Other trends, perhaps the importance of vaccines might come to the forefront. That sounds relatively simple, perhaps, to people in the US, but regions like China have never really had proper vaccination programmes more on the med tech side, very much an ongoing trend of people moving away from hospitals into more outpatient settings. This definitely started before, but because of the pressure in the hospital system, it's absolutely being accelerated. And then perhaps more as we think about the life sciences segment. I think we should have greater confidence in the funding environment for R&D. I think COVID has certainly highlighted the importance of that. And I would hope that maybe we start to see greater use of diagnostics as well, being able to diagnose people and treat people better. You asked about trends that might be weakening. The two that I may be keeping an eye on, firstly, on the consumer side, will depend on the depth of the recession, but you know how people choose to spend their money. For example, will they go for dental implants or buy the latest hearing aid? That's going to be important. Increased cost generally of doing business is going to be a bit of a negative trend that will impact the margins, I would say. Capex spend as well is probably an important one. We were just entering a big Capex cycle as hospitals were upgrading their imaging equipment, for example. And I think going forward, governments aren't going to have as much money and hospitals are certainly going to be struggling. So I wonder if we might see either a reduction in Capex or perhaps just being more selective. Maybe they don't need that next robot, for example.
0: It's fascinating to hear all the different moving parts. I'd like to go back to you mentioned digital medicine, and we've heard a lot about telemedicine this year. And I'm just curious, do you see this changing the usage of that as economies begin to restart? I mean, presumably, if we go back to normal at some point, people will just start going back to the doctor's office, won't they?
1: I think it's going to be a mix, really, when you talk about digital. Telemedicine, I agree with you. I think people will probably start going back to the doctor a reasonable amount, but it will completely depend on the reason. There are certain things, whether you just need a quick prescription or something that will absolutely still be done digitally, I think. Areas where you need to be examined, where doctors aren't as comfortable, I think people will come back relatively quickly. In terms of selling drugs, again, I think salespeople prefer face-to-face contact. So I think that will probably revert back as quickly as possible. Other areas, when I talk about digital, they're starting to develop apps, for example, to help patients track symptoms better. And that links directly into the doctor's office. They're starting to run clinical trials using digital endpoints. Marketing, they've been doing virtual conferences, for example. There are definitely aspects of this that are likely to stick around for the foreseeable future.
0: It sounds like kind of a balance in terms of how people will engage in going back to the doctor. And you also mentioned the vaccine. I have to admit, I'm one of those people that still squirms at the thought of getting a vaccine, but I can't wait until we have one for COVID. I'll be rushing to the doctor's office or however it'll be administered. So how has that race towards the vaccine progressed? Where are we in terms of actually having this cure?
1: Yeah. So you asked the question just as we're waiting for the phase three data. It's a bit of a tough one to answer. But what I would say is that so far, I've been pleasantly surprised at the speed at which everything has happened up till now. Vaccine development normally takes a decade. We could be at the point of having a product with emergency approval by the end of the year. So that's huge. If I go back bigger picture first, the early stage data that we've seen looks really encouraging. We're seeing immune responses when we use the vaccine. And we've also shown separately, if we inject antibodies as a drug, which is something that's being pursued separately, we're seeing that it helps reduce symptoms and reduce viral loads. Now, these are all separate points, but I'm hoping the data from the vaccine will help us join all the dots together. The front runners are Pfizer and Moderna, who are using this mRNA approach, It's a bit technical, but basically what you're doing is injecting the vaccine, the genetic code into our bodies, and our bodies will read this code and make the spike protein ourselves. And then we have an immune response to the spike protein. So it's pretty cool, but it is an unproven technology and it is a little bit more difficult to manufacture and it needs to be distributed at between minus 20 and minus 70. So it's a little bit tricky from that perspective, but they're in the front running position and we should get data within the next month. We have a couple behind from Astra and J&J. These are a different mechanism looking at viral vectors. And all I'll say here is that they're both on pause at the moment because of safety. I don't think they'll end up being a long-term issue here, but it's interesting that both of the viral vector approaches are struggling at the moment. And then behind that is actually my favorite approach. These are called subunit vaccines. And you just make the spike protein in the lab and inject it directly into the body. It's a proven technology used in many vaccines that we use today, but they are three to six months behind. So going back to your original question of where we are, I'm kind of cautiously optimistic we're in a good place. I think the vaccine studies will likely be positive, but I think it's more likely to reduce disease rather than stop people transmitting the virus. I'm a bit nervous on data in the elderly. We know they have weaker immune systems. And I'm also a bit nervous on how long the vaccine will last. It may well end up being a seasonal vaccine. You know, it's worth remembering that we don't really have very effective respiratory vaccines. Flu is a little bit harder because it changes its spots every year, if you like. So we should do better than flu, but it's still going to be difficult. And I imagine we'll still have plenty of questions, even when we start to get the data coming out.
0: It sounds like there's been a lot of progress and human ingenuity never ceases to amaze me. I want to then turn to investment opportunities. You've talked a lot about what's going on at what I'll say is a more macro level, just trends in the industry. But then how do investors take advantage of this if they're looking at individual companies?
1: This absolutely depends on your time frame and then stock specifics. Today, I do really like the life science and the diagnostic segments. I liked those before COVID as well, I would add, but I do still like them today. Not only are earnings underpinned in the near term by the COVID theme, if you like, but the underlying trends are really strong. With life sciences, it's about making drugs and we're just needing more and more of those and more complex types of drugs as well. And then on the diagnostic side, as I talked about at the beginning. We're just starting to use diagnostics more and more now to help personalised medicine, if you like. The other area is large cap pharmaceuticals to highlight. I'm hesitant on this one because valuations are looking attractive and the fundamentals are good, I think, in this space, but it very rarely does well through an election. There's often a lot of conversation on pricing pressure and what's going to happen generally with drug pricing. So whilst it's looking attractive, I think it's a good opportunity today on a multi-year view. But for the next three or four months, I'm perhaps a little bit more nervous. And then finally, maybe just mentioning MedTech. I think there are trades to be had here, but we have seen a lot of moves in the last three months or so in the recovery trade. And what's really hard with the MedTech piece is working out what is pent up demand because people missed appointments through the last three to six months and what is the underlying trend that we're seeing. So the space is very attractive on a long-term view with reliable mid-single-digit growth at least, but just working out that piece is going to be quite important for finding out what's attractive over the next few months.
0: And then Sarah, you're based actually in our London office. And as I understand it, London is not quite under lockdown, but I think it's a little bit more restrictive than here back in the US. So talk to us a little bit about what's it like being on the ground there? And then does that have any implications in terms of investment opportunities in Europe in the healthcare sector?
1: So London is actually going into stricter lockdowns. We were doing okay at the beginning of October. And then a couple of weeks ago, We did all get sent home again because the numbers started to spike and we're moving into what the UK has introduced, the next tiered category, which means that you can now only meet to six people outdoors which isn't particularly attractive as we move into November. So we're doing okay. But concerningly, we don't have the infrastructure in place. Testing has been horrific. Our testing and tracing strategy isn't particularly working. And getting access to tests has just not particularly worked. So I'm not sure we're in the best place, if I'm honest. As I think about how it affects my investments, from a healthcare perspective, I'm not sure it does too much as I think about Europe. I tend to bucket it into four in Europe, the drugs and therapeutics, the life sciences, the med tech and the diagnostics. And all of those themes and trends will generally be supportive regardless, aside perhaps from elective procedures if people are locked down. When you think about the globe, though, the U.S. has a lot more ways to invest in healthcare. There's a lot more segments. You could own healthcare insurers, for example, hospitals, managed care businesses, even healthcare IT has its own segment on the market. So I think there's a broader way that you can play the theme through the U.S. But here in Europe, we still have enough choice to make some money for our clients.
0: As Sarah mentioned, the healthcare sector in the U.S. is pretty different from Europe. Namely, there are more ways to invest. In the U.S., we also have next week's election top of mind. I spoke to Erin Shea, lead portfolio manager for BlackRock's healthcare fund, about the potential implications in different election scenarios and which policy areas she thinks will play out no matter what the results end up being. Aaron, as you know, we have an election that is imminent in the U.S. And anytime we have presidential elections, the healthcare industry takes center stage. What's top of mind for you in terms of implications for the industry as we get closer to the election?
2: Monitoring the potential policy changes is definitely a very important focus for us. If we look at the polls, it does look like Democratic sweep is the most likely election scenario. However, Democrats would probably only have 51 to 53 seats in the Senate, which lack the 60 votes that are necessary to pass major legislative changes. Therefore, we view any changes will likely be limited in scope. In terms of the specifics, Biden would likely want to expand Obamacare, which could be a net positive for health insurance companies. Public plan could be proposed, although our work suggests that the passage is unlikely. Elsewhere, drug pricing could be a focus. Here, we think the devil will be in the details. While some form of drug pricing reform is likely, we view the drastic scenario as a low probability. In an alternative election scenario of Trump getting reelected, we think health policy most likely remains status quo. Although Obamacare repeal is a concern, taking health care coverage away from 20 million Americans is politically very challenging, especially during COVID we would expect the ultimate outcome to be moderated. So net-net, while we see a lot of rhetoric on healthcare, the actual changes likely be more muted.
0: And so just to kind of dissect that a bit, you mentioned scenarios under a more Democratic administration versus a more Republican administration, essentially the incumbents winning. What are the policy areas you expect will be the same regardless of the result?
2: We would expect the policy to continue to favor value-based care, meaning that the care will become increasingly focused on quality and outcome as opposed to quantity. And this will help to manage healthcare cost increases. For example, there will likely be a continued push to lower cost settings such as home care. We also expect regulation around telemedicine to become more robust. Elsewhere, drug pricing is a bipartisan issue, we would expect some changes likely, but unlikely drastic.
0: Aaron, as you talk about some of these policy areas that you expect to play out, regardless of the results of the election, how should investors think about that when they're investing in the healthcare industry?
2: So we think companies benefiting from such policy shift should have very strong fundamental momentum and represent attractive investment opportunities. For example, telehealth. We're still very early in the adoption curve. Even though COVID has fast-forwarded the telemedicine adoption, we've seen a six-fold increase in the use of telemedicine services during the first half of 2020. And we believe this trend is here to stay. But we're seeing very widespread investments from hospitals, from physicians investing in telehealth capability. And we think consumers have also starting to get used to this model. We think there's still a lot of room for continued adoption. We also believe that business models that provide care away from hospitals, such as outpatient surgical centers, as well as home care, will continue to gain momentum as well. I think the penetration is still relatively low. And many kinds of care can be taken care of at home instead of being done at more expensive provider sites, such as hospitals.
0: You mentioned trends that have been accelerated due to the COVID-19 pandemic, like telehealth and wider adoption of at-home care. How has the healthcare industry changed since the pandemic hit the U.S.?
2: Yeah, Oscar, you're right. The healthcare industry has definitely been at front and center during this pandemic. The industry has put in tremendous effort developing COVID vaccines, drugs, as well as diagnostic tests. We believe ultimately the combination of vaccines and drugs will really take the world out of the pandemic. And the fast pace of vaccines and drug development speaks to the innovation power of the industry. For example, we've seen more than 150 vaccine programs get underway, and we expect to see some pivotal vaccine data released before the end of the year. COVID-19 has catalyzed some structural shift in healthcare,
0: And it seems like these days there's a lot of talk of the second wave, that it's coming, or maybe it's already here in the U.S. and it's hit other parts of the world. So I'm just curious, in terms of the path forward, what is that path forward? How do we get out of this? And is the U.S. on a different path than the rest of the world?
2: So I actually think we've been in the one wave. The first wave just really never stopped. The ultimate path forward, I would think, is really going to depend on the vaccines and drugs. There's obviously a lot of focus on vaccines, but I actually think drugs will be an important component as well. The elderly and people with underlying diseases tend not to respond to vaccines as well as healthy adults or young people. So in those populations, I think the drugs will actually be very important if those people still get sick, even when we get vaccine. And I think that ultimately the whole world is the same boat. And if one country is not under control, the whole world is not safe. And the vaccines and drugs will ultimately help get us out of the pandemic.
0: Aaron and Sarah both discussed how the coronavirus pandemic has reshaped healthcare, particularly in the public stock market. But what about companies that aren't listed on a stock exchange? We turned to Andrew Ferris of BlackRock's Private Equity Partners to talk about what's changing in private markets. Andrew, your role is in private markets rather than the public stock market. So can you just take a second to help us understand what that means?
3: Sure. Private markets includes investments in companies that aren't publicly listed on a stock exchange. This could include venture capital, growth equity, and leveraged buyouts. These companies can invest in long-term growth initiatives without the pressure of public quarterly earnings reports.
0: So it sounds like maybe a different set of investment opportunities that you're looking at relative to what's just on the stock exchange. So then with respect to the healthcare industry, how is that industry different for private versus public companies?
3: Private healthcare companies are generally smaller and earlier in their development than their public counterparts. On the early stage side, healthcare venture capital investment activity has risen a lot in recent years, and that's most notably happened in biotech, which has been driven by advances in drug research and an improved environment for exiting via IPO or sale to strategic buyers. We've also seen increasing activity across the healthcare landscape, both in growth equity investments as companies stay private longer and in leveraged buyouts, which are private acquisitions of companies using a significant amount of debt. A key difference versus public markets is that private equity investors typically have a four to five-year investment horizon, which allows them to invest for growth outside of the public eye. And so you
0: mentioned things like
3: biotech.
0: Is that one of the areas of the healthcare sector that you're more focused on right now, or are there other
3: areas as well? Biotech is one of those areas that we're looking at, but in terms of areas of deeper focus, I'd say we're mostly looking at companies that are benefiting from certain thematic market growth drivers and that can make the healthcare system more efficient. And I'll just highlight a few themes to illustrate that. The first focus area I'd mention is value-based care, which is experiencing a continued shift from fee-for-service. More providers are assuming risk in a value-based care environment and there's increasing vertical integration between payers and providers. The second area I'd touch on is digital health, which includes areas such as telemedicine, data analytics, and remote patient monitoring. These companies can have strong growth potential as they solve pain points in the healthcare system by increasing convenience for physicians and patients or providing cost savings for payers. The third area I'd mention here is pharmaceutical outsourced services, such as contract drug development and manufacturing. These are companies that can benefit from the growth trends in pharmaceutical R&D and prescription drug volumes, but they have limited reliance on the success of any single drug. And the final area I'd highlight here is Medicare Advantage, which for our non-US listeners are plans for retirees offered by private insurers partnering with the government. The Medicare policy addressable market is growing fast with 10,000 seniors reaching age 65 every day. And they're increasingly choosing Medicare Advantage as it can offer lower premiums and more benefits. Penetration of Medicare Advantage is still low at 35 percent, but that's forecast to rise to 60 to 70 percent over the next one to two decades. Some of the
0: things that you're mentioning were benefiting from trends that were already in place before COVID-19? For example, an aging population, it's sort of well known that there's a number of parts of the world that are getting older, developed markets in particular. So how do you see the aging population around the world impacting the healthcare sector?
3: That's a great point, Oscar. And I'd say that the world is really at a steep point in the aging curve right now, and that should continue to propel growth in the healthcare sector over the next few decades. In the US, we'll have the baby boomers aging through their 60s, 70s, and 80s. And the over 65 populations in emerging markets, such as China and India, are expected to triple over the next 30 years. So these are major demographic trends which should continue to support the demand for healthcare. And that's because spending increases pretty dramatically as people age. If you just look at some data in the US, healthcare spending per person is about three times higher for those 65 and older versus working age people. And a key reason for that difference is that the elderly have higher incidence of chronic conditions such as heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and high blood pressure. These are conditions that require ongoing treatment and monitoring, so they'll continue to support demand for healthcare providers, pharmaceuticals, medical devices, and diagnostics.
0: Andrew, as we mentioned, you're looking at companies in the private markets and you're investing for the long term. So I'm just curious, where do you see the industry moving in the next 10 or 20 years?
3: I'd say we expect to see significant changes across the healthcare landscape. And there's a few areas that I'd highlight here. So the first is that the industry will move more towards an integrated approach to caring for the patient. This would really represent a shift from today's typical care model where doctors are often focusing on treating a single issue. We could see primary care physicians playing a central role in coordinating patient care across a team of other providers. And to support this more holistic care model, electronic health record systems will become more integrated across providers. The second point I'd highlight is that where doctors see patients will shift to more convenient and cost-effective locations enabled by advances in technology. We've seen the adoption curve for telemedicine pulled forward by several years due to the COVID-19 pandemic and expect that its use will continue to be widespread in the future. There should also be a continued shift of medical procedures from the hospital to outpatient settings. And the final point I'd make here is that advances in technology will support both preventative care and improved patient outcomes. We'll see an increased adoption of wearable devices that send health data to providers and allow them to proactively see patients and address potential issues before they become acute. We also expect advances in personalized medicine to allow better customization of therapies for individual patients.
0: Sarah, Aaron, and Andrew all talked about how COVID-19 has changed the landscape for healthcare, accelerating innovation in technology and methods of providing care. And with the U.S. election just a short time away, we may see more changes in healthcare policy. But they also had a sense of optimism. With these advances come opportunities for vaccines, better access to care, and higher efficiency in the ways we provide care. All of this opens the door for new investment opportunities in the sector. That's it for this episode of The Bid. We'll see you next time.
4: This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the US and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the UK, this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. Authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Registered Office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N2DL. Telephone plus 44 020. 77433000 registered in England and Wales number 2020394 For your protection telephone calls are usually recorded BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited In Singapore this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited co-registration number 200010143N In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management, North Asia Limited, and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management, Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523-BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell, or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.